In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I started to have a look at these passages a few weeks back as I started to mull over what I would say today. And I was slightly confused about what I would be focusing on. There is so much in these readings, isn't there? And the teaching is dense and complex. How do we make sense of it? The passages uh, in the Old Testament, the covenantal relationship and promise of ancestral fruitfulness, the promises of justice and songs of praise that were in our psalm, the dense teaching of Paul on the righteousness of faith, and then the rebuking of Peter in Jesus' response in our gospel. Well, unless you are prepared to sit and listen to me to talking for about uh, three or four, maybe even five hours, carry on over lunch, um, I I will probably, um, well, I'll decide and have a little think and, well, I'll focus on a couple of things, shall I? I suggest that we uh, get stuck into thinking about what it means to be a disciple living by faith. Now you're thinking, that wasn't on your list, Ellen. Well, uh, that's what I'm going to try and put into place before you, that indeed all of the above is what living by faith and being a disciple is about. We're now in the throes of Lent and delving more deeply into our relationship with Christ in his journey to death and resurrection. And thinking about our discipleship and faith seems to me appropriate and timely. The gospel passage begins with that classic Mark way of changing the subject. He says, then he began. Just before this, Jesus had um, fed 4,000 people, stood up to the Pharisees, cured a blind blind man at Bethsaida, and immediately before this, he had asked Peter who he was. And Peter had replied, you are the Messiah. Indeed, up until this point, the gospel focus had been very much about Jesus' identity as Messiah, either about it being a secret, about it being demonstrated in miracles, or in the declarations of his followers. Then we have it. Turning on a pin, we seemingly have no warning, and Jesus hits us with this blow. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Not only does Jesus' teaching suddenly shift from the establishment of the kingdom of God, to the clarity of him being the inauguration of the kingdom. But he makes a shift in his own personhood and in turn reveals more about his identity. And his identity as Messiah, as Christ, is knocked into a new dimension by the revelation that this Messiah, the Son of Man, is not exactly the Messiah Peter had been expecting. 
suddenly the reality of the walk with Christ was starting to hit home. The truth about the nature of following a Messiah who was going to be rejected and who would suffer an earthly death must have been too much to bear. Indeed, it's so outrageous that Peter kicks off. Peter thinks that this is dangerous talk and we're told that he rebukes Jesus. Now this word, rebuke, is not used by Mark in his gospel very often. Mark uses it to describe what Jesus did to the storm to stop it raging, how he commanded demons to flee and to shatter his disciples' ego. But this is the only time that Mark uses this word about the actions of anyone towards Jesus. For whatever reason, in that moment, Peter took the role of superior. He stood there and took authority over Jesus. In private, Peter attempted to still the storm that is Jesus. He tried to cast out the image of the broken Messiah. And how long did this last? A millisecond. Jesus wasn't having any of it. In a beat, less than a beat, Jesus shifts from the private whisper of the chastisement of a friend to the public denouncement of dangerous talk. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus turns and rebukes Peter back. Do you remember the other time that Jesus says something like this? It's when he's tempted in the desert. And the temptation there is very real. So are we to assume that the temptation here is also very real? The temptation to see things from Peter's human perspective, to perhaps see himself as the conquering, majestic, earthly Messiah, who doesn't have to face up to his mortality, but keeps on battling earthly dominions, dominators, and rulers. Perhaps Jesus is tempted to let Peter be the ruler, to be the leader of this gang, to let him take initiative. Perhaps for that split second, there's a flash of what if. Well, if it is, and if that is what's happening, it's imperceptible to us. We don't see it. Even if we understand that Jesus is serious about Peter's suggestion being evil, that is not of God, and the rejection of the idea is absolute, Jesus will not be patronized, limited, or confined. And the rebuke reminds Peter that disciples are not to guide, protect, or possess. They're not there to do that for Jesus. They are there to follow. So it is with us. 
As Jesus' disciples, we are here to follow, not to mold Jesus into our image or try to get him to do or be something that will make our lives more comfortable. Jesus isn't our Christ there to be told what to do for us. We don't need to protect Jesus. Yes, stand up for him, but not to unnecessarily protect him. Jesus is not ours to possess. He is there for all. He cannot and will not be owned. As disciples, we limit ourselves and limit Christ at our peril. And the shudder of the rebuke Jesus throws back at us will be just as shocking as it was for Peter if we try to fit Jesus into our limited scale. What is it that Abraham and Sarah and Paul discover about the exceedingly generous and abounding love of God? They also learn not to limit God to their own imagining. Abraham, even at 99 years old, and his wife Sarah, are used by God and promised so much, not for themselves, for their nation, for the many nations and for their children. Their faith, which Paul describes as righteousness, opened the door to God's glory. Their faithfulness allowed God to shower them with covenantal promise of fruitfulness. And Paul wants us to understand that faith and trust is what make God's covenant with Abraham possible. Abraham trusts God and the covenant is kept. It's not by the law that Abraham becomes the father of the nations, but because he kept faith. And faith is what Paul is commending to the Roman church. Righteousness by faith. Justification through their faith, not through their ethnic purity or lawful living, just faith. Faith will bring God's people to salvation. For Paul, the faith he has is fixed on Jesus, through whom all righteousness is found. And by our faith in the God who raises Jesus from the dead, we might be made right. We will be made right, justified, and be given a new identity as disciples living out life for glory. And so then we're back to our gospel reading again. We step back into our identity as disciples, living out a life following Jesus and sharing his mission, bringing justice and peace, showing love and being generous, offering hope and being healers for the world. I've been in Northern Ireland this week with Archbishop Justin and a group of colleagues. And we spent three days on pilgrimage to a place of unrest and hurt, a place where there is confusion about truth and so much distrust and anger. And Jesus is used to justify so much of what is not of God. But it's also a place 
where people are overwhelmingly generous and kind, where Jesus is present and standing with open arms and a tear-soaked cloak. For me, at this particular moment, the pilgrimage is raw. My feelings are very confused, and I'm sure it'll take a long while to make sense of it all, of all that I've seen and heard. But I think deep at the heart of the experience was this clear sense that living by faith and being a disciple of Christ is an extraordinary gift of grace and something that I should never take for granted. That the daily call to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to follow Jesus means to me that I constantly wrestle with the temptation to try and save by my life by my own efforts, by being good or clever or by working hard. And there is Jesus saying to me, saying to us all, give up, give in, let me love you. Give up your life of fear and I will give you freedom and life eternal. Oh my goodness, it's only the second week of Lent and already my head's completely blown up. I feel so much of all of this. I feel like it's filling my head. But thankfully, we come to the Eucharist, as we do each week, and some of us more often than that. We come to the Eucharist today, and it can be a time for us to lay down our lives afresh to Jesus, who calls us to be his disciples, not through good works or by the law, but by faith. So today, let us all let the authority of the Son of Man empower us to declare our faith in him who came to save and to set us free.